So, everybody, you won't know this because what we will cut that part out. But James and I started a recording and started having a great conversation. And I couldn't hear him. Why? Because he was using Apple AirPods. All right. Let me start going off on my beef. And this episode has zero uh, theme. We're just going to talk. So you'll either love it or hate it or somewhere in between. But we, we figure we'll throw this out there. So AirPods. I've had mine since last June. June's my birthday. Love them. Hold them in my hands right now. Here's the thing, though. I run with them all the time. And they're awesome for that. But what I've noticed is, and this seems to be a common problem on the internet. And that's the problem I think we had with you. So you might want to. I don't know when you bought them, but you might want to take them back to the Apple store. Uh, people can't hear me. It keeps breaking up on them uh, when I talk to them on the phone with my with my AirPods and or when I'm recording a memo, which I do a lot. Uh, it loses the the microphone on there a lot, and it's a problem with. So basically, the AirPods they have two mics on them, and they bounce back and forth based on like where your vo- like essentially where is your voice closer to, and that is a common problem if you Google it. Because a lot of people are using losing their mic ability, especially on the first generation AirPods. And quite frankly, I paid 150 bucks for these, and I'm kind of pissed. <laughs> well, mine were a gift, so I, I don't I don't feel that same way. And the crazy thing is, I never question how people can hear you because, like, the corded headphones obviously have a speaker on it, and it's very obvious. But to me, on the AirPods, I'm like, the other day, I was like, how can people hear me on these? Because there is no obvious speaker to me. I guess I'm just still stuck in 2005, <laughs> but I'm just like, I don't know. But s- somehow, miraculously, people hear me when I talk on these things. I'm going to keep doing it and not question it. So today was the first time that anyone's told me they can't hear me. Yeah. So if you Google it, it is a common issue. And I've tried a couple of different things to fix it. And I'm outside the one year time frame on the AirPods. And it's it it gets better and gets worse. There's little tricks you can do it if you're having a problem with this. Um, you can turn off the automatic mic in your settings, and you can switch your mic to only one AirPod. So you can, for example, you can switch it to just the right one. Because yeah. what seems to be happening is when it switches from one mic to the other, that's when it loses its signal. So if you put it just on the right, it seems to uh, make that issue go away to a degree. But I've still had complaints and. It's it's almost as if the main complaint I've had after I've done that is that for for the first couple of seconds people can't hear me and then they can. Mm. So it takes a second to recognize my voice. But anyway, $150 Apple get your crap together because I love these things except for that one problem. <laughs> and it's funny that you're talking about these because I got this for a gift and this is not normally a kind of gift I would get and definitely wouldn't get this for myself. Like I guess I just accepted the fact that I would never have AirPods because they're too far out of my range of prices of things. I mean, plus I already had like thousands of headphones just accumulated over the years. So I was like, I'm never getting AirPods. But when I got them, I was like, man, this is the best invention ever. I had to see this video I made, uh, testing them out. I was running in place, doing drills and trying to make them come out and they never fell out. And I was amazed. Yeah, no, I love them. They're awesome. But again, Apple, you are great at designing stuff. You make high quality products. We exchange freedom because you trap us in your ecosystem. I can never leave Apple because I've got a MacBook, an iMac that I'm recording this on, an Apple Watch, an iPhone, an iPad, <laughs> AirPods. I am stuck with you. I need you to produce good stuff. I can't switch. 
All right, this will be the last episode of Millennial Manhood because you'll be banned from the platform after this. <laughs> right. Hey, in fairness, Apple doesn't own uh, uh, Spotify, which is who runs my podcast. So there you go. All right. Um, oh. and, and all those things. But anyway, welcome to another episode of Millennial Manhood. James, what's going on with your life? Before we got cut off by your AirPods, you were talking about how you're taking a two-week sabbatical from training. Oh, yeah, man. So taking a break from training. Uh, we actually have a break from coaching this week as well, too, in our, with our club. So. I haven't been doing much of anything. The main thing I've been trying to do, we're trying to plan like last minute Labor Day vacation. So I've been searching all over Airbnb and VRBO, and I've been honing in on my Mario Kart skills so I can beat you next time we play. <laughs> all right. So, <laughs> all right. So I have one gift in life. I am an exceptional Mario Kart player. I've got a. I don't care if it's the N sixty four old school. Or if it's the Nintendo Switch, which is what James and I played on a couple of weeks ago. Him and his wife came and visited us in Nashville. And, I mean, I got first place every time. I don't know what you got, but... I thought we only played like once. So, I don't know. That's not, that's not a big enough sample size to say that you're first place in the gold medalist. You know what I mean? We didn't have... We played an there, entire man. cup. That's four That's four freaking races. That's just one one tournament, though. You, we need a larger sample size. Maybe the courses would have changed things. I don't know. I just don't know. We can't go off that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so we we had a good time with that we watched um james came down for a race uh actually two races back to back one in nashville one in memphis um how does it feel going from well i guess let me ask you this how does it feel to just take two weeks off because we also went and watched you train during uh one of your practice sessions and i got tired just watching so how does it feel having a two-week just sabbatical from coaching from training from i mean and and not just that but we've been following your journey to the to the 2020 olympics that got postponed to 2021 so your your life got pushed back an entire year um when it comes to something as big as that so just give us a little update man i I got a lot to update you you might not be talking the rest of the podcast after this um so with the break first of all it feels awesome to just unplug and um get away from what I do on a day-to-day and the grind on one one on one side of things. But on the other side, I'm kind of frustrated with the way this year ended because the training was going amazing. Like I'm hitting things I've never hit before, things that I didn't even think of, like in terms of efforts in training and times in training, I've never even thought about hitting. But now I'm hitting them almost with ease. But then in the performance aspect, like in the racing, I didn't actually hit the goals that I thought lined up perfectly with my training. So that was kind of very frustrating. So um, after this time period, I'm going to go back and kind of really just analyze everything and get down to the bottom of what happened. Maybe we backed off in training too soon, or maybe uh, maybe I just needed some more races to really get under my feet uh, to let my training really be expressed in performances. Um, so that's something I'm going through right now, just kind of unplugging and trying not to think about that too much, but as the athlete and the ambitious person inside of me, trying to get on top of that and figure the answer out. But yeah, even backing up further, man, like with the Olympics being postponed, I don't know. I think I told the Millennial Manhood crew, this was going to be my last year of running. I mean, I've been running since I was nine years old. I'm 31 now. So that's a long, long, long time. It's funny. The kids I coached are like, you're 30? <laughs> They're like, you're old. They all yeah. think I'm like right out of college. I let them think that until randomly for a teacher moment, I tell them how long I've been doing it. And they're like, wow. You're but you got to remember to kids being 30, basically you should go ahead and retire. 
Oh yeah. It, so it's it's hilarious when the realization comes to their mind. Wow, he's thirty. He's like double my age because a lot of the kids I work with are like fifteen, sixteen. But it's really cool. But anyway, um, this is going to be my last year, and I'm not ancient by any stretch of the means. Even in track and field, a lot of people are used to Olympians being like nineteen, twenty, twenty-five, even, but not really thirty. They really just don't know how old people are that are competing. But a lot of athletes are around thirty. Uh, and I even think that's about the peak age for the event that I do, the 800 meters. But um, this was going to be the last year. So last October, I quit my job and um, my my wife is, is helping support me. She pushed me to quit my job, something I would never have done any other way, but just because I want to work. I want to feel like I'm adding value. And as a man, that kind of took away from me feeling like I'm adding value in that area. Um but I realized that wasn't true and that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. If you're being supported and pushed to do that, you got to do that. So um, did that, accepted that, got into other things, got into coaching to fill my time, um, still reading a lot and training. But uh, then the Olympics came and went. <laughs> they got postponed to next year because of the coronavirus. Um, so Oh, let me back up again. I had an injury earlier this year, so that was a blessing from that standpoint because it allowed me time to recover without stressing about how my fitness was and preparing for the games. It gave me a whole another year to get my fitness back and get back on track with the games and the trials. But from the standpoint of this being my last year, we'd already planned on um, having a normal life, my wife and I. And she sacrificed a whole lot for me to chase this dream, and she's the most important person by far in my life. It's just really amazing. Um, so we already had our eyes set on that, doing a lot of traveling, just living casually and doing things that we wanted to without a strict, rigid schedule like my training schedule puts on our lives. So that was kind of adjustment as well. Now we're adjusted there, but I'm struggling right now to figure out how to fill my time, especially with this break period my mind is just spending. So that's, that's a little bit of an update there. Sorry, you're just bored out of your mind? Is that the problem? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm bored out of my mind. I have plenty of things to occupy my mind. It's just like, since this time period, I'm not training. I'm not working in the traditional sense. I kind of just don't have a purpose. Every single day when I wake up right now, my mind is just kind of in limbo. Like, what do I do? I have too many options, you know, that since my day is not disciplined and structured, there's just too much freedom. Mm. That's interesting. So there's a lot to unpack there. So go back to we can go to the discipline and freedom. You know, I think it's Jocko would say discipline equals freedom. Exactly. That's Uh, where I pulled that from. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, you talked about your, you feeling like a man, you need to add value and your wife sacrificing. And my wife would say your wife's the real MVP. Um, Mm, as she's nodding off in the corner, she's (laughs) like, Courtney's the real MVP. Um, but talk about that because let's stick on a topic of millennial manhood. So you're not working, you're not bringing in money. Um, I mean, I know you can make money winning races and things like that, but just from a purely like budget household standpoint, she's supporting you and chasing your dream. And it's a once in a lifetime opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. And that's awesome on her end. But I know for a fact on your end as a guy, there's gotta be some cognitive dissonance happening like crap. Like, do you feel, or did you feel, and did you have to overcome that mindset or are you still battling that or give me some thoughts? I definitely had to overcome something with that. I had to overcome a lot with that. 
<clears throat> um, so I want to say last August, right after we got married, she started planting that seed. Actually, even when we were dating, she we both knew that that was a better situation for me because, I mean, I don't know if your listeners remember, but I'm a, a CPA by profession, uh, accountant. So we tend to work a lot of hours. We work a whole lot. We're very analytical. Our work, just the nature of our work, just demands that we work a lot. So I was working full time for a long time. Then I worked part time and I'm training. So my training is already super demanding on me. So to do both of those things and go 100% at both, like the old proverb says, you chase two rabbits, you catch none. Uh, that's kind of where I was at. I was just draining my my system in two different ways, and it was just way too much. So she brought up the idea of me leaving my job. We knew that we have enough income to do just off our salary alone. So um, she kept pushing that idea, and like I kind of ignored it and brushed it off because I could not see myself not working in a traditional sense ever. Like I just could not see it. It just didn't make sense to me. Like I have to. Like what do you mean? not do it. It just felt weird to even entertain that. Um, but she just kept pushing me and it's like, she was like, if you don't go talk to your manager, I'm going to talk to him. <laughs> just kind of putting it out. There. I know she really wouldn't have, but she really was telling me how serious she was about it. It's not a joke. It's not, she's not sitting on a whim just to really emphasize the point that she's thought about this. We both know it's best for me. Why would you not do it? And even like in a joking way, she would kind of belittle me and say like, are you stupid? Like, why would you not do this? <laughs> Because you know that you're you're running yourself into the ground by continuing to do both of these things. So I knew that she was right. I knew this is once in a lifetime opportunity to be able to do this and chase this goal that I have. And it was just for a year at the time. So mm -hmm. I wrapped my mind around it and I was like, you know what? She's right. And my identity as a man is not wrapped up in working in this sense. Because at the end of the day, I still am adding value. And, um, you know, our guy, Jordan Peterson, he said something one time that resonated with me. And it's, it kind of overlaps here. He was talking about how um, men, men are attractive to their mates, not because of the amount of money they own, but it's kind of like because of their earning potential. Mm -hmm. Basically, if they are fulfilling, if they're living in a fulfilling life uh, and a mission-driven purpose, then that is all that, 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 that is a strong enough attraction. So he used the example of uh, a professor. A lot of professors don't make a lot of money, but a lot of them are very purpose-driven and really going after life and making a huge impact. And he was saying how that really makes a big attraction between uh, a mate, a male and a female in a relationship because you're purpose-driven. So in my training, I'm very purpose driven. And so just because I'm not making money in the traditional sense, I'm not working in the traditional sense. There's still a lot of work there. It's a full time gig. Um, and it's not like I'm just being a bum. And I think that was the crux of it. I felt like if I'm not working, am I going to be viewed as a bum or am I going to view myself as a bum? Am I going to be able to 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 live like that and have, you know, integrity with myself in doing this? Ooh, that opens up such a can of worms in conversation. So isn't it amazing how society has conditioned us to believe that the only way you're not a bum is if you're working a nine to five? Man, I was so conditioned. so conditioned. So conditioned. And it, so one of, the, one of the books that I'm reading right now, um, and I'm kind of shocked I'm just now getting around to it. So everybody on this podcast, 
unless you've this is your first time listening, which welcome. Uh, hit the subscribe button. Leave us a, a five star review. Um, has me heard just rant about rich dad poor dad and Robert Kiyosaki's book, legendary book, and just the mindset shift that it creates. Well, rich dad poor dad was written. <laughs> rich dad poor dad was written actually to get you interested in reading his follow up book, which pretty much nobody has read. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is ironic, uh, which the follow-up book. So Rich That Poor Dad is all about mindset shift. <laughs> Cash flow quadrant, which is the follow-up, is actually tangible ways of, you know, hey, how do you structure your finances, et cetera. So I'm reading Cash Flow Quadrant right now, which again, I'm kind of shocked it took me this long to get to it because I've loved Rich That Poor Dad for years. Uh, but there was a quote I actually sent you the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we text too much. I can't, hold on, let me find it. Uh, I sent you the screenshot. You gotta go to your photos. I know. I, well, I don't know if I saved it in my photo. Oh, there we go. There we go. So, uh, come on, open up. Um, so here's the quote. A person may be highly educated mentally, but if they are not educated emotionally, their fear will often stop their body from doing, sorry, stop their body from doing what it must do. That is why some A students get stuck in an analysis paralysis, studying every little detail, but failing to do anything. This, quote, analysis paralysis is caused by our educational system, punishing students for making mistakes. If you think about it, quote, A students are just A students simply because they made the fewest mistakes. The problem with the emotional psychosis is that in the real world, people who take action are the ones who make the most mistakes and learn from them to win in the game of life. Mm. And I was like, man, that is so true. Our, Our entire upbringing, what he said about A students are just A students because they've made the least mistakes. I can't tell you like growing up in school, how many times I was afraid to complete something or do something because of the fear of making a mistake and how that drives you into the real world. And and I was talking to, to Tamara about this last night, you know, we, we were talking about, um, people suffering from depression or anxiety or, or whatever it may be. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. I fully acknowledge and admit that, for example, anxiety is a real medical condition. I get that. I, I'm not disputing that in any shape, way, form, or fashion. I know people have to get help for it. I'm all for people getting help for it. I'm big on mental health, going to a therapist, you know, getting, getting the medication you need, et cetera. I just personally have a hard time relating to it because I don't believe I've ever clinically suffered from it. Does that mean I've never been anxious? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I I don't believe I've ever really experienced it in a debilitating way. And part of that, and, and I think I really came to that realization last night at dinner when her and I were talking, is my career path in particular. So what I've done for the last eight or nine years. So, you know, I'm in finance, financial advisor. Um, it's almost an insane job when you think about it. Like you, you have to be a little crazy to do what I do because you reach out to people to offer them something, get them to open up in like the most intimate way possible about their finances and then sell them on why they should work with you. <laughs> and all you do every single day is expose yourself to failure. Like you make phone calls and uh, I mean, people, you know, whether it's cold calling or referrals and like just all the rejection you're getting, then all the rejection in meetings, like you, you, you get in front of 10 people to get one client potentially that's a 90% failure rate. And, uh, but again, my point to all that is I've literally exposed myself on the daily for almost a decade to 
constant failure and the stress of failure to where I've essentially become completely numb to it. And I think, again, this is just a hypothesis. And if somebody wants to challenge me on it and help me think through it, I'm all for it. But I think because I've consistently forced myself into that human interaction over and over again, it has forced me to come to terms and challenge my own anxieties and challenge my own insecurities and be more self-aware. Um, and I think because of how technology has gone and how jobs and human interaction has gone, particularly in the last decade, we have lost that human interaction. Everything's via email. Everything's via DMs or LinkedIn messages or whatever it may be, text messages. You, you're, you're, you never get to alleviate that anxiety. You're constantly in a state of anxiety because a text message leaves too much to the imagination. Hmm. Does any of that make sense or did I just ramble for 10 minutes? No, that, that all makes perfect sense. It sounds like you've pretty much just rewired your brain because as simple as a conversation is and as simple as rejection in a conversation in a social setting is, that terrifies a lot of people. And it goes back to our historic roots as human beings. Well, probably even before if we're human beings, before we're homo sapiens, like our, our lim- the limit portion of our brain is the decision-making portion of our brain. And that's directly tied to our emotions. So we make decisions strictly off our emotions and not off the rational portion of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. So you've rewired it to look to your prefrontal cortex as the one with true meaning instead of your emotions when you have rejection. Somebody rejects you, it doesn't hit your heart. It doesn't make you feel bad because, you know, oh, it's just one, it's just one rejection. All I need is one acceptance in order to make some cash. That's mm-hmm. all I need is one. And so yeah. you chase that not being deterred by a failure because you know it doesn't mean anything. And just because I get some little heart flutters here and there doesn't mean anything. I can still keep pushing and having persistence and being tenacious and I will get the desired result. Yeah. It, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're good. Go ahead. No. Well, it kind of goes back to the conversation we had when you guys were here in Nashville. So um, the whole best man conversation. Yep. yep. You know, so, so we were each other's best men at our weddings. And I was, t- I was talking about how at your wedding, when I gave my best, best man speech, I personally don't understand why people are nervous giving that speech. Because when I logically think about it, I'm the best man. I have all the social proof on earth. I'm standing at the altar. I'm holding the rings. I'm speaking. I have more social proof than anybody else there besides the bride and groom. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and the maid of honor. Like, I'm not here to impress you. I already won. You're here to impress me. So why would I be nervous about giving a speech? And it sounds arrogant, but it's logic. It's the truth. Like the best man and the maid of honor have like all the pr- social proof in the world. Why would they Facts. be nervous? Facts. It really doesn't make sense. But what I've come, like, I'm super intrigued by anxiety and depression. I have a handful of friends who are clinically depressed. Yeah. Um, and I have a handful of friends who have anxiety clinically diagnosed. And so I watch a lot of videos and do a lot of reading and understanding anxiety. And I've, I've felt it on lower levels, much lower levels, just like competing and getting that anxiety before race, having the nerves. And 
to me, it boils down to this. And it's not as simple as this. Trust me, I know. But when you're anxious, you're just putting all your all your attention on yourself. And you're just thinking about how you feel and paying attention to the doubts and the chatter that's going on in your head. And um, I was watching a video from Jordan Peterson, and he was talking about the way to overcome anxiety is to focus outward, to focus on the people you're with. And so to your point about the texting and the DMing and all that, if that's all you're doing, you have no one to focus on. I mean, you have uh, an imaginary, an image or a model of somebody to focus on. You're looking at their screen name or their, their profile pic, but you don't have an actual human being to really focus on and actually key in on and put your attention on and talk to them and see how they're doing, see how they're feeling, ask these questions. All you can do is ask, oh, what are they going to think about me? Oh, what if I say this? Oh, I don't want to say that wrong. I don't want to make this mistake. So all your attention is there and it just goes down this rabbit hole of just stupid doubts and things that are not even rational. But if that's all you have to bounce off of is yourself, you're going to stay there. You had to focus your attention outward. And then when it comes to depression, it's all about your routine. Routine. Mm. By being structured, that gives you something. It forces you to be to put your attention on something. So it's all about our attention and where we put it, um, which was just like mind blowing because I thought about times when by far I don't think I'm trying to say that I'm depressed or have can identify with someone who's depressed in that uh, fashion. But I've had times when I've felt a little down, you know, but yeah. then whenever I get out and I go and do something and I engage myself in something, I feel a new second wind of the day or a, a new form of life coming. I'm like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Um, our, our brains don't even work in the same capacity when we're thinking about ourselves. They can't even, we can't operate at our fullest function. Yeah. We're, we're social creatures. And and that, I mean, what you said about that, like the structure and, and the eliminating of depression via structure, that's why I think it's so important for people to go and get help. Right. Um, and I wish there wasn't this taboo. I, I, I read something once again, I was talking to Tamara about this. I wish we didn't call it mental health. We called it brain health because it just sounds so much less taboo. Right. Um, and again, neither James nor I are clinical psychologists. Like <laughs> we're not here trying to diagnose people, but I'm just saying from the standpoint of like a, even going to a therapist is a sense of structure every so often, like every Tuesday, Thursday, or once a week or whatever, you have this meeting and that gives you structure and that can possibly help you. Um, you know, so, so there is, but again, going back to the original point that I was making, I think. I, I really do believe this the more I think about it. My unique um, profession that I chose to do for so long is such a unique approach in 2020. Like I still deal with human beings. Right. Human beings a lot of times who don't want to talk to me and I have to turn them and get them to like me. And that's how I make money. That's how I build a business. Um and I and, and you know you think back twenty thirty years ago that was way more common. Now, you you don't have to. I mean, even in the financial services world, like thirty years ago, the only way to buy life insurance or or a stock or you had to go through a life insurance agent, a broker. The only way to get a mortgage, you had to go to the bank. You, I mean, now you can go online and do anything. You don't have to have that human interaction at all. Um. So, I, you know, I do think that creates an environment for all of us. And we all fall into that trap from time to time. And we all fall into that self-doubt. And 
I mean, I can't tell you how much happy I've, I've gone on a rant about this. So I won't go on a rant, but I can't tell you how much happier I am since I eliminated my entire Facebook feed. Hmm. Like there, all the nonsense that just triggers you in a moment and gets you mad goes away when it's not a Facebook feed. When it, like, I don't, I just don't think our brains are designed. I know our brains aren't designed. I'm reading a book right now called Irresistible. It's all about addiction within technology. Our brains are not designed to take an in information the way we take an in information today. Yeah, that's that's super smart to just delete the feed completely because you're just taking in everybody else's problems, all the the news and politics and stuff, and it's just too much. It's all negative. Well, and it's all designed to engage you in the negative from an algorithm standpoint engages you more. Yep. yep. So, I mean, there's a reason everybody who says they go on a sabbatical from social media always, t- I have never, ever heard somebody talk about going on a sabbatical from social media and being like, that That was terrible. I hate <laughs> everybody says the same thing. They're like, that was awesome. Okay. Well, if everybody says that was awesome, you know, there might be a problem here. Yeah. You realize how little you actually need it. Yeah, I mean, it sucks that a lot of jobs and work, and there's good parts to it. Let's make it, I mean, let's not pretend like it's all bad. It's connected humans on a, on a level that, um, you know, wouldn't have been possible before. It's made the world significantly smaller. I mean, I've talked about every time my wife and I have gone to Europe, it, like, I don't feel like I'm in another, I mean, obviously I'm in another country, but my phone works, my, 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 my phone number works, people text me, people call me, I can check social media, email, whatever, um, all of it operates as if I'm in the States and that's a big deal because 20, 30 years ago, that was not the case. Yeah. 20, 30 years ago, you might not have a cell phone that could fit in your hand. You probably have one that was fit in a suitcase or. Yeah. Or you had the, you had the Nokia playing snake. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I, I want to talk about another subject real quick. Let's, right. let's, let's pivot. pivot. Yeah. All right. This is super interesting to me. Um, because I just think, um, this topic in general is super interesting. And you and I were talking about it last night. So you're a big like history buff and wanted to know your ancestry and family, et cetera. Correct. Exactly. Okay. So you've done a DNA test with ancestry.com, right? Yep. Okay. So let's set the stage real quick. Can you pull up your results while, while I'm setting the stage? Let me see. I don't know if I have the app still on my phone, but I'll pull it up. All right. So if you, all right, uh, let's see this. While you're, while you're pulling that up, in the most basic terms possible, describe yourself from a, it, within an American context, um, how, if somebody saw you on the street, how would they perceive you from an ethnic standpoint, racial, you know, background, et cetera? Well, everybody would perceive me as a, an African American. Yeah. And, and not just that, but within the context of the African American community, it's fair to say you'd be considered more on the, on, on the darker complexion, right? Yeah, I'm on the dark skin side of things. Yeah, so nobody nobody would look at you and be like, oh, that guy might be mixed. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. So, with that in mind, <laughs> let's talk about your, your ancestry results. All right, it's taking a second to pull up, but until I get the actual results, I re- if I remember correctly, about 70 to 75% was West African. Which makes total sense because that's where the African slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade was the Ivory Coast, West Africa, to the Americas, back to essentially England or Portugal, back to West Africa. Yep. The Atlantic slave trade triangle. Yep. Yep. And then the remaining 25 to 30% is European ancestry, mostly uh, 
Great Britain, British Isles, Scotland, Ireland area. And then there's some random like Germanic and other European countries that pop up on there as well. Um, which that's a whole third almost, you know? Yeah. I mean, so you get these results again, you are very obviously a black man, right? Culturally, you're a black man. Right. You, grew, you know, you, you have no white family members in your immediate family, right? None that I know of. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Tamara, <laughs> hold on. Tamara just pointed at herself. <laughs> she's that there is, you go she's your she's your one she's your one uh just uh, plain the, vanilla american white family member in the immediate family yeah true true, yeah. true there you go hey i mean by by serbian law we are we are a family we're blood uh, there you go okay so <laughs> that was funny um so you get these results what goes through your mind well i'm really not that surprised because I figured this already, you know, I, I didn't know exact percentages, but I knew that there was a percentage that was of European descent. So not surprised, really. It's just it's still just amazing, though, even when you know something to be factual and when you see the actual data backing it up, it's still just like mind blown at the same time. So not surprised, but still mind blown at the same time. It's as hard as it is to, to believe. What um, emotions went through you? At the time, emotions didn't really go through me, but I guess randomly thinking about it, like I have European ancestors that I have no tie or connection to. That is the part that's really weird. And so I look now, I look in the mirror and know that I'm just as connected to those people. And the thing is, I have no issue being connected with European people. I love people who are of European descent, but to know what likely happened in order for me to get that DNA. To, for for my ancestors that have been taken advantage of and be forced to to go into those acts, that's the part that gets on my nerves and it, it drives me nuts. You know, when I think about it. Yeah, and and that's the the complex part of it because, um, you know, you and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, you were talking about how you didn't feel a strong connection to. You know, if we if we found your village in Wales where your ancestors came from or whatever, or Scotland, you, you don't feel that connection to those ancestors. And I asked you a question, is it because you don't identify as white or is it because of the complex history of slavery in America? Right. And I think it's both. I think it's both. And I think, but I think the sec the second, the latter issue stems from the first one. I mean, mm -hmm. because I don't identify as a culture because, um, how did you phrase that first part again? You don't, you don't identify as white culturally okay. or, or, and you don't, I mean, the complex nature, I mean, let's right. be real. Attention. The complex nature is why I don't identify. It's why our cultures are so separate. Yeah. Because I mean, black Africans were brought as slaves. Right. Right. So it's 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 not because I want to be diff, uh, separate from them. It's because the, the tension has caused me to be separate from them. So that's what it is, man. And, and one thing that's been really interesting to me is, so you when you do the Ancestry.com DNA test, it connects you to a bunch of cousins. Right. And how many white cousins you've been connected to. And they, when you communicate with them on Ancestry, they have a hard time understanding how you guys are related. 
Well, some do, which is weird. Some don't. But yeah, some do. They're like, how does this, how is this possible? There was a guy from Canada of all places who was connected. I can't remember how far down it was. It was a while ago. And he was like, yeah, my, my dad, he, <laughs> I don't think he understood how genes work because we were like some like six cousins or something like that. Something crazy far back. And he was thinking like his dad had had some improprieties in his marriage or something like that. Like, nah, that's not how it happened. It was way, way back. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, so he shocked him like, People really need to do their research. And I think that it should be common knowledge that no African-Americans or very, very few African-Americans who were born in the U.S. are completely African. And well, there's a reason African-Americans don't look like exactly, Africans. Exactly. And it's not because they came from a certain place in Africa where they look different. It's because they have mixed heritage because of the tensions in slavery, because our ancestors were raped and pillaged. At different times in that 400 year period or in that 250 year period uh and it should be common knowledge like i said but i feel like people just don't even think to question it i think even some black people don't, don't think to question it but i think now with the information age you can't not question it because you're going to see stuff on your facebook feed especially right now with the tension of social justice and, and those movements going on people are really questioning things even more probably too much even yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. Um like you said on on the on the conversation piece of why African Americans don't look like somebody from Nigeria. Right. I mean, what is it about that? Um now, I'm not saying we can all acknowledge that there were consensual relationships between blacks and whites. I mean, Morgan Freeman has that famous story of one of his ancestors. However, that's the exception to the rule. Right. You know, and I think a lot of folks would like to pretend that that is the rule. And I don't really see how that could be the rule. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't. Now that doesn't, that doesn't make, that doesn't make everybody who lived 200 years ago evil. Right. That's, That's also not what's being said. There's a context and a conversation to every single piece of history. Right. Um, like I think about it on my family history. So I come from a part of the world that's very complex from an ethnic standpoint. Okay. And I come from a part of the world that in the last 10 years has had a lot of ethnic tension and strife. What I wish my people, and I mean that, Serbs, Croats, Bosniaks, everybody, Albanians. What I wish they understood more is, I'll, I'll give you an example. So on my mom's side of the family, her paternal line, the Stockage family, settled in northern Bosnia about 250 years ago. Their tribe, their name was called Kuchi. Um and they came from uh, an area which modern day is southern Montenegro, northern Albania. Okay. To this day, that tribe has descendants that are Serbs, Albanians, and Bosniaks. All from the same tribe. Wow. Identifying as three different ethnic groups. On the most extreme ends of those ethnic groups, hating and killing each other. Mm. On my mom's maternal side, the Stoichevich family, 
they come from Dalmatia, which is the Croatian coast, modern day Croatia. In the 15th and 16th century, half of the family was Serb, half of the family was Croat. On purpose, on de- by design. That would happen all the time. People would basically be Orthodox on one side, Catholic on the other side, which was the main delineator between the two, um, so that the family always had somebody on the superior, like whoever was in charge, the family always had somebody on that side to protect the other side of the family. Wow. That kind of stuff would happen all the time. When the Ottomans came, you have stories of one brother converting to Islam, the other one staying Christian, so that the family always had protection. Mm. The problem is you get two, three, four generations down the road and people forget why that happened. Mm. The story's gone. The story's gone. And now all of a sudden you've got problems. And and now all of a sudden you have power struggles. I mean, there there are stories, that, I mean, very well-documented stories of when the Ottomans came, the Vizar. So you had the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, which was which was inherited uh uh father and son. But the Vizar was basically the 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 political head of the Ottoman Empire. There are several Greeks and Serbs and Bulgarians, I mean, young men who were born into Christian families who were taken uh, to the Ottoman Empire, converted. Several of them were Serbs. There are stories of these Serbian Vizars who converted to Islam coming back to their home villages in Bosnia, in Serbia, in Croatia, or wherever, and building a mosque in that village and then building it for for the empire and then building a church in that village for their family. <laughs> Crazy. Right? Yeah, that, that's, that's a lot to wrap your mind around. That's a lot of complexity. And the fact, so- the fact that your family did it intentionally at a certain point, that is crazy. And that's super smart. And that's just genius. It's, it's insane. It's crazy. And, and, but you get two, three, 400 years down the road and all of a sudden you're being manipulated by whoever is seeking power mm-hmm. for an ethnic conflict. It's insane. It's genuinely insane. It's not logical. Yeah, and if more people, I mean, I'm anathema for even bringing some of this stuff up. Like there, are, there are people who will listen to this podcast who will be pissed off at me for bringing this up. Facts. Who are f- from my part of the world, and I will tell them you need to grow up and learn your history, because most of you just make up stories without without knowing anything. Um, you know, understanding that hey, we're not that far removed from each other, right. and that the world is more complex than we would like to admit. And those waters are a lot more murky than we would like to admit. And that there's, you know, there's legitimate problems. Again, I'll go back to that part of the world. There's legitimate problems with going and attacking that village over there. Just because, you know, they're from a different ethnic group than you. Because I guarantee you, if we pull up your family tree, you guys are not that unrelated. Yeah. Man, you said something super important. And I think people fail to realize this all the time because they don't do their history, how complex people are and how complex things are because these things derive from these complex people. Mm -hmm. And you have to do your history and understand things before you just jump in somewhere and plant a flag or make a statement that you don't know that much about. People are so there's so many nuances to these things, just like to your point right before we, we pivoted and talked about your family history. You made the fact that you made note to the fact that just because we're saying these things that happen to the African Americans here, that does not mean that all people who are of European descent in America are bad, evil people. 
But the the tendency is of people when they hear a conversation going in that direction, they think that they understand or they apply some ideology to the people speaking and they think that, oh, these people are against white people. And that's further from the truth. We're just stating facts about what happened. But there are nuances there. There are still great people on both sides of the of the totem pole. You know what I mean? And just like going to your family history, there are great people on both sides. You just have to understand the nuances and be aware of why people are the way that they are today. Why people do the things that they do. Just be aware. Educate yourself. Yeah. and But that's complex. That's hard. It's very hard. People don't want to invest the time. They would rather categorize and label people immediately so they don't have tension in their brain and they can function in what they feel is a normal world. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so, 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 so much there. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to work through that and it's hard to have an honest conversation because the honest conversation is distasteful on both ends. Very. Like, unless both parties aren't comfortable, it's not really an honest conversation. Mm. That's very true. Yeah. If one side is uncomfortable and the other one's not, that's not an honest conversation because life is not that simple. Yeah. So then that drives people to the polls. So to the polls of each end. So it's either like a super surface conversation where no one's even remotely uncomfortable or it's on the other end where everybody's completely uncomfortable and they can't even stay in the same room because they're so uncomfortable. Yeah, and, but the uncomfortable is where solutions come. Yeah, not not to that degree that I'm talking about, but yes, in the middle where you're both uncomfortable, but you're talking through it instead of just like name calling, making straw men out of each other's arguments and stuff like that. I think that goes back to the whole um, technology thing, though. The the in a because we create these echo chambers, so we think everybody just either agrees with us or is crazy, right? And it's like, dude, most people, like, I barely agree with anybody on anything. <laughs> you want you want to know why? Because I'm actually willing to entertain ideas and work my way through them. Right. And I try to surround myself with people who are willing to do the same. I mean, that was part of this, the whole point of this podcast is I wanted to have a place where, where people could have conversation. And, you know, I think it's important to have you on here and talk about the fact that hey one if we if we take your genome and break it down one out of four people that you descend from are white facts what does that actually mean for you as a human being right you know there's you know there's i mean i i've talked about this before like even when i look at if i go back to my family history the reason my last name is what my last name is. My last name is only 150 years old. Before that, it was Jovicic. My family, my, my family settled from where Sarajevo is today in Bosnia to eastern Bosnia to, to where Bielina is in, in the northeastern corner on the border with Serbia. And then my eighth great grandfather was asked to come be the Grand Duke for the Christians in the area where we settled in the 1790s. And their last name was Jovicic. In 1858, they changed it to Djurjevic because there was a rebellion that failed. And in that rebellion, both Christians were massacred by the Ottomans, but also my seventh great uncle went and destroyed like four Turkish villages. Okay, so 
we always talk about the 3,000 Christians massacre by the Ottomans, where we just conveniently forget that Pedro Jovicic burned down a whole bunch of villages with his band. Both of those happened. Both of those are part of our history. And we can make the case, hey, it was a justified yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, most people are just regular human beings trying to live life. No, no. So why are we trying to keep people from living life? And, and we're just making things more and more. I, don't know, I think we're making things more and more complex than it needs to be. Most definitely. We can, I mean, we can go to another topic that's not as not as heavy. <laughs> yeah, we can pivot. We can pivot. Uh, I like that topic, though. That topic is deep. Well, it's deep and it's not happening because everybody's got 140 characters on Twitter that they're allowed to make their arguments on. Right. And it's funny, man. I was I was reading the comments on Ryan Holiday's post. He made a great post the other day about uh, police brutality. And it was a very thoughtful post, right? And he was talking about how his dad was a cop for 20 years. So he's not as biased as people would seem to think. Um, and then I went to the comments. I, was like, I know I shouldn't have gone to the comments. You just read people's, people making statements that if they had read his post would understand that their response didn't even make sense. But people can't even take the time to read a post that they're commenting on. People just comment. Of course not. <laughs> that requires thought. <laughs> it's just so funny to me. Like People will post a comment on a post refuting what they believe. And the post even addresses what they believe, but yet they will comment something that makes no sense. Like how how idiot idiot, idiot how much of an idiot do you have to be to do that? It just it makes no sense. But the internet is filled with those guys. Well, but you also have to remember, part people want to people are more isolated now than ever, and they want to feel like they belong to a tribe. Yeah, they want to be heard. They want to be heard. So Ryan Holiday wrote one of my favorite books. The first book I ever read by him was called "Trust Me, I'm Lying." confessions of a media manipulator and the entire book is about how he would get hired by companies to manipulate news articles and advertisement and things like that to basically um you know sell stuff and it's, it was one of the most I, I already knew the media was full of crap um not being from america i have a deep deep distrust specifically of american media um but the actual tactics that is that are used and that are explained in that book. And that book, I mean, came out in 2012, so it might as well be ancient history at this point. I mean, it was it was just mind-boggling how they would do the things that they would do. And that's still what's going on on both the left and the right. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, it's and and if again, if you don't use your prefrontal cortex, which is not developed until you're 25 anyway. So some people can't use it yet. <laughs> yeah. So, but some of the loudest people aren't even 25 yet. Very true. And like, part of me just wants to go to like every 19 and 20 year old and be like, hey, stop lecturing your parents about life. Take a step back. Okay. Wait a few years. Wait a few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, just maybe, just maybe your parents aren't horrible monsters. Just take a step back, chill for a couple years and then see if they actually like, maybe they were horrible monsters. Who knows? But more than likely, there were human beings who were at least competent enough to raise you to a point to where you're not dead after your first year of life, like most children in human history. But hey, I read an article about how to raise children. I think I know more than my parents who actually raised children. Yeah, exactly. So 
<laughs> it's like, like you can't go to the store and buy experience. It's uh, yeah, so now I'm not telling young people as a young person, I'm not telling young people don't be involved in your community or politics or things like that. Just maybe, just maybe you don't know more than everybody who's ever lived. Exactly. I, uh, there's an interesting stat I saw that talked about how this generation we're living in is the first generation that has more information and knowledge at their fingertips than their, than their parents, than the generation before them. Mm. But yet they have no life experience to go with it. So that's why there's a lot of tension between these two generations because our generation, we think we know everything because we have all this knowledge afforded to us and we can go Google whatever we want to. But yet we have no life experience to teach us the nuances of the, that information, that knowledge that we just picked up. We have no wisdom. We can't apply it. But yet we still speak as though we can. Mm. Um, so it's, 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 that was kind of eye-opening to think about it in those terms. Yeah, back in the day, you would have to have experience in order to get that knowledge because it took longer. Exactly. So you could apply it more strategically. And that still doesn't mean that our parents' generation can't be dead wrong on something, which they are dead wrong on a lot of things. But uh, it just means that you had to be careful when you're speaking and thinking that you are the authority on something because you don't have the life experience to back it. So, I mean, at what point did you start? So you're 31. At what point did you start realizing like, hey, maybe I don't know everything? Ooh. I mean, I guess I would always have said that, but at the back of my mind, I was like, I do know it though. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I would say, even if my dad had a line, he would always say, yeah, I don't know everything, but what I don't know ain't worth knowing. (laughs) (laughs) Your dad said that? My dad used to say that all the time. So I kind of adopted that. It's, It's funny to me. But I would say, I really realized how little I know about at 27, 28, mm. I really realized then like, man, I really know nothing. And I feel like that freed me up to actually own a few things that I do know. Like when I realized I don't know this, I'm ignorant. Mm. It allowed me to be vulnerable enough to actually learn stuff. Like This is a little bit off topic, but I'll bring it back. I was watching this video on YouTube yesterday about Kobe. Um, and he was talking about how when he was 11, he played all summer in this league, this very competitive league, did not score a point. Mm. And, the, and the guy interviewing him said, did you not, were you on the bench? He was like, no, I was playing. I was on the court. <laughs> but I didn't <laughs> score a point. But what he did was he realized, okay, now I need to take, ad- adopt a long-term view. And so he practices fundamentally. He was like, okay, all summer, six months, I'm going um, to just practice my shooting. Okay, now I'm going to practice my defense. So he did that. Over, and then when he was 13, 14, now he's killing everybody. Mm. So he slowed down to speed up. And I like in that process of what we're talking about, when I realized how little I knew, it allowed me to slow down my mind and realize, okay, I don't have to act as though I know everything because I don't. And I rewired my brain to be just act as though I'm ignorant about something. Even if I know a lot about it or I think I know a lot about something, just back up. Like go back and wipe the slate clean. Learn about it. Be curious about it. Always be learning. Um, you don't have to know everything. And so that was kind of the same thing I did. Slow down to speed up. Funny Kobe story real quick. Yeah. I was watching a Kevin Hart interview. And apparently Kevin Hart was really good at basketball before everybody hit their growth spurt. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes to this camp in Philadelphia. And apparently Kobe was pretty well known at this point already. But they're in high school, like maybe freshman year. And uh, 
Kevin Hart's like, yeah, I'm going to go to the league, yada, yada, yada. I don't know. Do I want to go to Georgetown? Do I want to go to Duke? Do I want to, you know, all the false bravado of a 14-year-old right. when you're just suffering from irrational confidence. Um, but he gets put on Kobe to guard him. And um, Kobe just lights him up. I mean, just absolutely embarrasses him over and over and over and over again. Drops like 40 points or something ridiculous. And Kevin Hart was like, damn, man, like I'm, I'm over here, like giving him everything, just guarding my life. And um, the coach afterwards go, comes to Kevin Hart after the camp is over and he says, so how was it guarding Kobe? And Kevin's like, man, I gave it all like that dude's special. And the coach was like, do you notice he uh, never touched the ball with his right hand? And Kevin was like, whoa. And then the coach was like, he specifically came to his camp to exclusively work um, <laughs> on his left hand. Wow. And that's when uh, Kevin was like, oh, like, this is what it takes to, <laughs> to make it. To... <laughs> he was like, oh, 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 he he never even touched the ball with his right hand. He did everything left-handed the entire camp. A whole nother level. I mean, it's insanity. Like, the, the amount of, the amount of just sheer talent and somewhat of a psychopath you have to be to do something like that and be that good at something. Um, it's just unimaginable. Yeah. I don't know that Kobe, I don't know that Kobe actually really believed in talent that much. I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, uh, from hearing him talk, the way he talks about work, he talks about it as though talent is a very small portion of any result that we get, we achieve. And I'm kind of starting to adopt that mindset. We kind of talked about this when I was in Nashville. Um, but going back to the when he didn't score a point that summer and he just worked his butt off the next two years and then he kind of arrived, that goes to the point that maybe he didn't have talent in this in the sense that we're thinking about, you know? Maybe his talent really is the fact that he can outwork everybody else. Yeah, but he still was like, what, six, eight? Yeah, but I mean, I'm sure he was tall when he was 11. He was tall for an 11-year-old from what I understand. I might be wrong, but. Yeah, I, I'm I'm agreeing with you on the talent side, but there's still Kevin Hart was never going to make it to the NBA ever because Kevin Hart's five five. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Muggsy Bogues out there, but that's an outlier. <laughs> yeah, that that is the absolute exception yeah. to the rule. 100%. You and I, you and I have the height to be in the NBA. We we could be point guards, maybe short shooting guards. Yeah, we have but, Steph Curry style. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not out there hooping like that. I'm not balling out the frame. It's not, it's not happening. Uh, I'm not willing to sacrifice my body <laughs> at that level. Um, bringing shame to all my people because they kind of make up 90% of all the white guys in the league. <laughs> they do. That's a, that's a fact. Which, by the way, Luka Doncic is the truth. He's killing it. That three mm-hmm. he shot in the end of that game last, was it last week? Man. Oh, man. It was, I mean, it is like, it's like magical watching him play. Um. It's just, and you know, I, I take pride in the fact that his last name ends in itch, um, you know, as if, as if I have anything to do with it. You're like, it's all me. That's all me, baby. Yeah. I mean, we're probably like eighth cousins or something like that. Probably. S- somewhere along those lines. Get his okay. DNA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Another topic I want to talk about. So you got to meet my dog. I did. While, while you were here. Again, Tamara's laughing at me because she's like, oh God, you're about to talk about the dog. So Harlem is the bestest boy ever. Um, I have been reading so much about how humans and dogs 
develop their relationship. And it is so fascinating because I grew up not liking dogs. Ditto. And yeah, I know you didn't either. So I know I've asked you this question before, but why do you think you didn't like dogs? Lack of experience around dogs. And because of that lack of experience, I didn't know how they thought. So anytime they open their mouth, I'm thinking it's going to bite me. I'm thinking any dog's going to bite me. I have no understanding of what they do. Yeah. And the more you learn about dogs, the more you understand that dogs don't bite as an attack. Dogs bite when they feel threatened. Right. Um, and it's been, it's been really interesting getting a dog because I never really understood why people love their dogs so much. I always thought it was weird, man. I can't explain to you how much I love this dumb animal. Like <laughs> he is so awesome. Um, and, and we just have the time of our lives together. And it's, it's, it's interesting because so I started reading about why do humans and dogs have this special relationship within nature. And essentially what it comes down to is um, gray wolves and canines, which is modern dog, share 99.9% of the same DNA. They're almost, they're almost the identical, like an identical animal. Um, however, on the sixth chromosome of a dog's uh, genetic makeup, there is a genetic mutation that makes them more sociable and less aggressive towards humans. And essentially what happened 30 to 40,000 years ago is our ancestors were hanging out and this lone wolf shows up, you know, at the campfire or something and he's not aggressive. You know, he's got those big old puppy dog eyes and they're like, oh, you know, we'll throw him some food. And our ancestors give him some food and in exchange, that dog goes hunting with us. And what that did for human evolution is it changed the way that we would hunt. So now the, the dog, or essentially at that time a wolf, um, is coming with us on the hunt. And that wolf knows that that prey is three miles away. We can't hear it, smell it, see it, or anything. But he knows it's there and can help guide us to get larger game. So essentially, within human evolution, if we don't domesticate dogs, we never get to the point where we get to have agriculture because what happened was we domesticated dogs and it allowed for us to more efficiently hunt larger game, which allowed for our brains to grow more aggressively and us to develop more aggressively until the point where we get to the agricultural evolution and we create farming and, and domesticate other animals such as cows, chickens, etc. Mm. So without Without us accidentally coming across those wolves who had that sixth chromosome mutation that made them non-aggressive to humans and then breeding those wolves with other wolves until we get to the modern dog today, until we get to the point where I texted you this other day, there's a skeletal uh, excavation that was done in Germany before World War I. It's an entire family that was buried together. For some reason, they died. Something happened. Uh, an adult male, adult female, and their dog all buried together 15,000 years ago. It was important enough for the dog to be buried with the family when they all died together for whatever reason it was. Think about that. Now, what part of the world was that? Did you say that was in Europe? Okay. Yeah. It's, it's another thing that's really interesting. It's believed that, um, the dog was first domesticated in Eurasia. So think like Armenia, Azerbaijan, like those Georgia, those are that area. What's really impressive, the genetic or the archaeological record 
shows a very quick, relatively quick uh, transition to finding um, domesticated dog fossils all over the world. So it's like somewhere in Eurasia, these early humans figured out like, oh man, like these, these wolves are awesome if we keep them in a cave with us and they, they help us. And they like, they shared it quickly, like all the way to like Japan and Africa and Europe and all these other places. Like you see domesticated dogs and that's, what's unbelievable. Yeah, that really is. That's, that's really wild. Like a genetic mutation caused it. And now how how much of the population in the U S would you say has a dog? Oh, I don't know. I know 90 million dogs live in the U.S. Wow. I looked that up the other day. Wow. That's crazy to think about. All from a genetic mutation. Well, it's even more impressive to my dog, which is an American bulldog, and my sister's dog, which is a corgi, are the same freaking species. I was just thinking that. That makes no sense. You got Yorkies out there, corgis out there, and then they're the same thing as a pit bull. Which pit bulls are awesome. If you think pit bulls suck, I don't like you. (laughs) <laughs> this is totally different than a conversation we would have been having in high school we would have been like why do people have dogs that it made no people? sense to me i can't stand people with dogs. that's what i would have been saying back then yeah like my like my dog is literally sitting behind my chair right now passed out and i'm like oh you're just the you're just the cutest boy he just looked at me like i know you're talking about me bro ears perked up ears perked up just ready to go at any moment in time but yeah it's it's um I don't know. And, and part of why I've been thinking about that so much, again, is like the complexity of human life. Like, think about how crazy you have to be. How crazy does that first human have to be to be like, hey, you wild animal that we're typically afraid of, come on inside the cave. Hmm. But I mean, when your survival is at stake, you're thinking about ways to get food. I mean, it's worth the, worth the risk, right? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. You, you might not get food anyway. You might die anyway. So, Okay. You got on one hand, you might die from the hands of this wild animal, or you might die from lack of food. Uh, maybe I'll take the risk that this wild animal will help me find food. Seems friendly I, enough. <laughs> I guess. I also, I also want to know who was the first human that looked at a cow and said, if I squeeze that, that white stuff that comes out, I'm going to drink it. <laughs> yeah, we need to find out a lot. of. We need to put some questions out there and say, who was the first human to fill in the blank? All these crazy things like how our lives would be so much different if we didn't have these things. Like for real, who, who really was squeezing those others? <laughs> and, and why is the majority of the world lactose intolerant? What's going on? Yeah. We're not supposed to be drinking that, but it's no. so good. Not even a little bit. Basically like middle Eastern farmers were like, Hey, squeeze that cow nipple. You get that stuff. It'll be we'll drinking it for you, but you'll drink it anyway. And yeah. And then we'll it. take it to Europe and then nobody else got it. That's basically what happened. Everybody else, everybody but Middle Easterners and Europeans are lactose intolerant. Mm, that's crazy. It's unbelievable. All right. Next topic. And we can make this the last topic. But I've been throwing around the idea of writing a book. Actually, for a while. Millennial Manhood kind of started as a way for me to gather information to write a book. But I asked you what you would want to write your book on. So let's work through this in, in, in public. Um. I'm assuming you would want to write one. Yeah, I think it would be cool to write a book. Um, okay. Just to, so what have you been thinking about? Um, writing a book, there are a lot of different topics that come to mind. I mean, just my journey, which a lot of that is related to running. 
A lot of that's related to my profession as an accountant. Um, so those two topics are big. And then uh, motivation would be a big thing. So I think somewhere in that space, like the coaching, motivation, uh, business, and athletic standpoint, all those things combined, they, I could have isolated books on each one. Or just a combo book that kind of follows myself all the way through. And I, I kind of would want to write a book more so for myself mm. to just write my story in a coherent fashion that just to help me understand myself better uh, and see if it could help somebody else. Kind of like the David Goggins book. You know, that's kind of what he did. Um, with a lot of F-bombs. With a lot of F-bombs. But very important F-bombs, though. <laughs> they emphasize a lot of things. Had a lot of emphasis. Okay, so let me ask you this. Because this is the first question that people always, if they don't say it out loud, they they say it under the breath. Who are you to write a book? I am no one to write a book. And that's the question I'm sure is in the back of my head as I I say those things. And I try to make myself someone worthy of writing a book, you know. But it's not really even about that. Um, I don't think I'm any different or any better than anyone else. I just think that my experience could shed some light on some things for for other people, for myself, um, just different things I've had to work through. And I, I love books because they compress into minutes what took years to, to learn. So if I could shed light on that for myself again or for other people, that's, that's well, well worth the time put into it. I like that answer. And, I would add on to that, actually. Who was anybody to write a book when they write their first book? Right. So my, I remember Michael Hyatt wrote uh, wrote his first manuscript. This is in the 90s. And he took it to 29 publishers, and all 29 publishers told him no, and the 30th publisher said yes. Hmm. Think about that. 29 publishers said, nah, we're good. That's a lot that's of being, publishers. That's, that's a lot being of told. Yeah, that's being told 29 times, no, we don't believe this product you're peddling will sell. Mm. It's not a good idea. And how many New York Times bestsellers does he have now? Too many to name, probably. Right? So he finished the first book, published it. It was a decent success, but now he's a published author when he's writing a second book. Now somebody says, who who are you to write a book? It's like, well, I'm a published author. That's who I am. Who are you to ask that question? Right. You know, so I think a a lot of the thoughts, because I've been thinking a lot about this podcast and all the stories and all the knowledge and wisdom and things like that, that, you know, at this point being almost 90 episodes in, there's almost too many to listen to um, if you're just starting out, but condensing it into a book and just condensing like the, because there are a lot of repeating themes over and over and over and over and over again. And I mean, part of what you said about even figuring out your own story and figuring out your own thought process, like using a book as a way to uh, work through your own beliefs and thoughts right? and passing on what you've learned by condensing that information into, you know, 150 pages or whatever it may be, could be incredibly impactful. Right. So how would you structure this millennial manhood book? I've been thinking about that. So I think it needs to be broken down. The subheader of Millennial Manhood is Confidence, Initiative, Persistence. CIP. Yeah, I think I would break it down into three categories because I do believe those are still the three categories that are the key to 
not success, but just continuously progressing in life. You got to have confidence in yourself. You got to take initiative in the things you want. And you got to be persistent because typically things don't come easy. Um, and I would repeat over and over again that those three themes have been the heart of every episode. Whether whether we would mention it in an obvious manner or if it was just subtext, I think it was it's incredibly important. And I don't know. I don't know if I could get it published. Um, I mean, maybe, probably. I don't want to say I don't know. How hard am I willing to get it published? <laughs> Let's say there we go. Are you, willing we go. To, are you willing to go the Michael Hyatt route? Yeah. Am I willing to be told no over and over and over again? Um, no doesn't really bother me. I feel like I can wear people down. So maybe um, I would like <laughs> I would like to get it published. If, you know, I just need to work through one of the things that I want to do is get to a hundred episodes of the podcast and then work my way through all the episodes and just re-listen to all of them and maybe re-interview some of the people off the record, um, on some of the topics we discussed and, and talked about. Cause I would, I, I think the information that was gathered in this podcast, I'm just the director of the movie, the way I look at it. I'm not the screenwriter. I'm not the main lead. I am none of those things. Um, you guys are the stars of the show. You guys are the writers. You're the producers. I All I've done is I've gone and found the people, brought them together, and then worked really hard to make sure that the story makes sense as it's being told. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there's so much knowledge within the context of these episodes and the episodes that are going to come that I think it does need to be condensed and written down as a, Hey, here's essentially a guide of what's been talked about for a hundred episodes. Yeah. And so that's how I think about it. And then I think about other, I mean, I think about other book ideas as well. I've thought about sales and sales management books, writing those like passing on what I've learned on that front. I really like doing sales coaching uh, and teaching. I've done a lot of training on that front. I've thought about creating a course, a financial planning course, um, taking all my knowledge I've gathered in that world, um, and, and basically giving everybody access on, on that front, like, Hey, here, pay whatever it costs to have the course. And then all the, the information that you could ever want that I've aggregated over a decade of doing this with people over and over again, here you go, uh, get yourself on the right track. So, you know, there's a lot of those, those thoughts that I have. It's more so just stepping away and deciding, okay, for the next I don't know, 90 days, I'm going to write for two hours every single day and, and having the material. Um, that's the scary part to me. It's not so much the rejection from a publisher. The scary part to me is the amount of consistent work it would take and committing to it. No questions asked. Right. Which I guess I'll just have to suck up and do at some point. Yeah. Writing is, it's a difficult process. It really Uh, is. It's for me. It's one of the most difficult things to do, but it's one of the most enriching things to do once I actually get down to doing it. I think about that passage from Atomic Habits. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. I know you probably know where I'm going at, where I'm going now. But how he didn't he lock himself? Uh, he wouldn't allow him to do something until himself to do something until he had finished his book. I can't remember. You remember that passage in there? Oh, I don't. I mean. Not really. Or I think he had to wear the same clothes or something like that. It was something crazy. Uh, but it was just like just committing, just blindly committing to the task of writing so that he had no other option. 
That's pretty much what he did. I think that's what you had to do, especially with something, not just writing, but with something very difficult. Just commit, just straight up commit to it. Find whatever way you have to to commit to it um, and to, to dedicate yourself to that time to get it done. See, I approach writing a little bit differently. I mean, maybe some people would consider this cheating, but I dictate, I just word vomit when I write like blog posts or articles or whatever. I just word vomit into my dictation app. So I play, I pay for a service called, um, oh my gosh, what's it called? Copy talk. That's right. Thanks, Tamara. Uh, I pay for a service for copy talk, which is how I do my case notes within my practice. But then I will just dictate my thoughts and they'll write it out and then I get it emailed to me and then I take that and then I edit it and make it all nice and pretty. Um, and I find that to be significantly easier than sitting in front of a computer and starting to write from nowhere. Cause I can, I can talk forever. I can just keep going and going and going and going. Um, and typically what I do is I give myself more material than I need. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just cut it down from there and make it more coherent and functional. And that's a very creative way to do it. That's a very creative solution. That I don't think most people would think of. Uh, well, I remember when you first gave me that idea, I was like, man, that's, that's super, a lot easier than just sitting down with a blank slate and just writing and typing. Because when you type, you're going to think, well, is this the best word to use? And so you kind of paralysis analysis thing, at least for me it is. But with talking, you just go off the dome freestyle. I got bars for days. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I have a podcast, so I know how to talk. Right. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I've thought about just doing a whole book that way. Just basically giving myself bullet points. And just dictating over and over and over and over and over again, and then taking the material that is dictated and then actually making it coherent from a reader standpoint. So, I mean, essentially what I would have to do is I would have to come up with ideas, dictate it all, have it all transcribed, take it back, make it more coherent, then take it to an editor, have the editor edit it um, and make it actually book pretty. And then take that manuscript and sell it to a publisher. Yeah. But then I also don't like the idea of a publisher owning the rights to my book. That kind of bothers me too. You gotta get that Master P publishing deal. Right. Which, <laughs> by the way, if you haven't watched the Master P documentary Chronicles on BT, go watch that. I don't care if you like Master P or not, or you care about rap music or what. Like, just that story is just so fascinating. That's the American dream. It really is. I mean, this dude was just the ultimate businessman. Yeah, super inspiring. I finished it last night. Um, we can make that another episode. We're, we're we're coming up on time over here, so we need to wrap it up. But anything else you want to add to the conversation? Anything you wish we would have talked about that we didn't? I can't really think of anything. I'm just going with the flow, man. I'm just enjoying talking to you and diving into these topics. Boom. Well, I'm glad we, we had a non-topic and Harlem comes over here and puts his head in my lap. Look at him. If we had a video, I would show it to everybody, but you can't see you can't see him. So he's just being cute. Um, millennial man, millennial dash manhood.com info at mmcip.co as always constructive criticism and, and uh, uh, compliments both welcome. Don't just complain, though. You got to offer a solution. We don't take complaining. If it has to be constructive, if you don't like something, offer up a way that we can do it. That would be better. OK, uh, which folks have been good about that. Uh, I'll have obviously James's social media and all that good stuff up but James always good to talk to you always always